Greetings. Today is Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. My name is Christopher Hoster, and I am the founder and executive director of Opus One Berks Chamber Choir. It is my pleasure to welcome you to season two, episode six of Opus One's podcast, Octavo. The podcast covers pertinent topics related to the world of music and spotlights organizations and individuals who are making a difference in the artistic community. Each podcast has a main theme or focus and features guests with knowledge or experience in that particular area. Our previous podcast, which aired on March 15th, was entitled The Music of Ukraine. March 15th was the 20th day of Russia's unprovoked invasion of the sovereign nation of Ukraine. At present, the conflict has lasted almost three months and has resulted in thousands of casualties and more than 6 million refugees, according to the United Nations latest reports. On the podcast, we spoke with Andrew Skitko, an adjunct teacher at the Hill School and chorister with Opera Chorus of Philadelphia, Philadelphia Symphonic Choir, and an active Byzantine Ruthenian cantor. Andrew's also the founder and artistic director of Theoria Chamber Choir, an acapella ensemble that performs works of the Slavic chorus tradition. And Andrew is a collaborator on the Ukrainian Art Song Project, which promotes the treasures of Ukrainian art song and helps to preserve and catalog these songs through modern recordings. Today's podcast is entitled RVW 150. This year, 2022, is the 150th anniversary of the birth of renowned English composer Ray Fun Williams. To mark this occasion, Opus One will present a monumental concert on Sunday, May 22nd at 4 p.m. at St. John Baptist de La Salle Church in Shillington. The concert's entitled A Celebration of Von Williams. The highlight of this concert will be the American premiere of The Garden of Proserpine, a rediscovered work composed in 1899. It's scored for solo soprano, chorus, and a 40-piece orchestra. Other program works, programmed works include six choral songs to be sung in time of war, five mystical songs, the voice out of the whirlwind, and several familiar hymn tunes. For this performance, Opus One will be joined by Conrad Weiser's Coraliers under the direction of Sarah McGrory and Governor Mifflin's Governors under the direction of Greg Hill. Maggie Riker will serve as the soprano soloist for the Garden of Proserpine and yours truly will sing the baritone solos in five mystical songs conducted by Peter Sunderman. Tickets for the in-person event may be purchased at the door. This concert will also be available to stream online from May 26th through June 12th. Please visit our website for more information, www.opus1chamberchoir.com.
Joining us for the interview is Dr. Eric Saylor. He's a professor of music history at Drake University. His area of specialization is British art music of the 19th and 20th centuries, focusing particularly on the life and works of Ray Fon Williams. Um, he's the author of English Pastoral Music from Arcadia to Utopia, 1900 to 1955, co-editor of two essay collections, The Sea in British Musical Imagination, with Christopher Shear and Blackness in Opera with Naomi Andre and Karen Bryan. His articles and reviews have been published in the Journal of Royal Musical Association, the Musical Quarterly, the Musical Times, Music Concepts, the Journal of Musical Musicological Research, Music and Letters, the Journal of the Society for Musical Musicology in Ireland, and 19th Century Music Review. Dr. Saylor is the author of Von Williams' entry in the Oxford Bibliographies on Bibliographies Online. Contributed to uh, a chapter of the Cambridge Companion to Ray Von Williams, and he's a contributor to the second edition of the New Grove Dictionary of American Music. And he just excitingly put, uh, completed a life and works biography of Von Williams for Oxford University Press. Um, I can't think of anybody better to talk to about our upcoming concert focusing on Von Williams. Um, so Eric, thank you for joining us and welcome to our podcast. Well, thank you. It's a real delight to be here. And uh, I guess after hearing that whole litany, it explains why I'm tired all the time now. So that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> Don't take a nap until after the interview. though. Okay, I'll do. I'll put the pillow aside then. No problem yeah, there. Exactly right. Thanks. <laughs> so um, my first question um, is kind of broad, but I thought it would be a nice one to start with. Um, it seems to me Von Williams is a, a composer um, whose music continually speaks to new generations and across continents. So why do you think that's the case and what particularly drew you into the study of Von Williams? I think it's a great question because it particularly hits at odds with the image of Vaughn Williams that has been so widely perpetuated as a sort of, you know, big avuncular spirit of England personified and music kind of, of quality, because that's often how a lot of British uh, musicologists and theorists and writers on music have, have tried to claim him as one of their own. And yet he was hugely popular in the United States during his own lifetime and uh, in, in certain parts of Europe and Scandinavia, he was well received. The Sixth Symphony, when it came out in 1948, within a year, had had over 100 performances worldwide. So I think you're spot on in saying that it does that his music really does have something to say to audiences outside of the British Isles. And certainly for someone like me, uh, when I first came across Vaughan Williams's music, I was an undergraduate uh, in central Iowa, and I had heard his music you know, occasionally as, as one does in Christmas carols or the other uh, sorts of, of uh, kind of vernacular context. I had sung a handful of the songs of travel as an undergrad when I was doing a voice minor. But the first time that I really had my socks knocked off was when I accidentally heard uh, the Sea Symphony. I wasn't familiar with the piece. I was house sitting for a professor one summer and he said, oh, I've left something in the in the uh, stereo, just be careful if you turn it on. I think it's kind of loud and I thought, fine, sure, whatever. So I turned it on and I left the room and it was in fact a disc of the Sea Symphony and it was turned up to about nine. And it that huge opening fanfare somehow parted my hair from the back when I was walking <laughs> away. And I, I thought to myself, what is this? What, how have I never 
heard something like this before and I was just instantly hooked. So something like that, a piece that was written or had its first performance in 1910 could still have that kind of visceral impact by the mid 1990s, separated by 80 plus years and 4,000 miles uh, of, of distance, it really spoke to me and said that this is something that has meaning, it has power, it's something that has transcended its own time and really deserves to be taken on those grounds and not just sort of a narrowly national perspective as it was so often represented. Right, I, I think that's great. Yeah, the Sea Symphony is fantastic. I mean, it just blows you away right from the beginning. I don't know if it started playing right away at the beginning part, but man, that just, it takes you, floors you right away <laughs> it did and then when the choir enters and they and they're just oh, bellowing you know, a huge <laughs> shift is you know it really sets you back on your heels so right. so quickly so it's it's an attention grabber that's yeah. for sure so uh, my next question um deals with sort of his juvenilia and the works um which which really up until recently haven't been closely scrutinized or there's not a, been a, been a lot of scholarly research and so it seems unthinkable to me when you take this famous com modern composer um and you have this section of his works that are really not looked at or or haven't been until until very recently so what do you think the impact of those early works are on on his overall output and why do you think they haven't been studied until until recently well to answer the second part first i think the main reason is twofold first i think he was very concerned about the quality of them himself Vaughn Williams is often represented, again, in a lot of the earlier secondary literature, the stuff that comes out particularly in the 50s and 60s, and really up until, gosh, I would say the mid-1990s or so, as a composer who is often represented as intuitive and sort of natural in, in, in the way that he's doing stuff, not a technical professional, someone who kind of flails around like an ungainly porpoise and just sort of accidentally finds himself doing something good, which is nonsense. Uh, he's hugely professional, incredibly fastidious in everything that he does. But when you look at many of his works that were written between about the time that he started working at the Royal College of Music, that is to say, uh, studying as a student at the Royal College of Music in 1891, and for about a decade or so after that, up till about 1901-1902, there's a real sense that he is exploring a whole bunch of different avenues and trying very hard to find his voice. You get more of that consolidation of it that begins to happen between about 1902 and 1908, but it's a long and labored and difficult process. He knows that he doesn't want to sound like anyone else, but he doesn't quite know what he sounds like yet. And so you can get bits and bobs of, of different pieces that sound a little like Brahms, a little like Perry, a little like Tchaikovsky, a little like Mahler, a little like Strauss, a little like this and that and the other, and a little bit here and there like what he is actually going to go ahead and become. There are occasional flashes of, of what's ahead of him. But when he finally starts to figure out what his voice is, and I think it's probably the songs of travel that are some of the earliest examples of pieces that do that, and then leading on to things like In the Fen Country, Toward the Unknown Region, uh, On Winlock Edge, the first string quartet, 
um, that is the, the G minor string quartet, the Talos Fantasia, and so on. Once he starts to do that and the hits begin to come a little bit more regularly and his confidence begins to grow, he looks back on some of these earlier works and, and thinks, hmm, that's, that's not where I am yet. So maybe we'll just keep those on the down low for right now. People don't need to see how the sausage is made. Let's just go ahead and have the end product. So many of these works never got performed, or if they did, they were only performed a handful of times, and he deliberately kept them out of circulation. In a couple of cases, he said he destroyed them when he didn't, actually. He may have forgotten that, but they were just buried. And after his death, Ursula von Williams, his second wife uh, and widow, took great pains to make sure this stuff would not be reproduced, would not be recopied, would not be performed, because she was very concerned that if that happened, it could damage his legacy. Toward the end of her life, she began to relent on that, though. And so very slowly, very gradually, some of these works began to reemerge into the light. And it turns out they're not bad at all. There's a lot of really, really interesting stuff in there. And there's nothing wrong with them. It sounds like pieces that are written by a young composer trying to find its voice. And so when we come to these, it's we, we can now get a much better sense of Vaughn Williams's arc of development. And I think it really establishes him as a much more professionally oriented composer, much more thoughtful and careful composer than he's normally presented. And that was a thing that I really wanted to try to emphasize in this forthcoming book in a way that it hasn't been done before. And I think uh, Garden of Proserpine actually is a work that is one of the, the crowning achievements of, the, of those early pieces that does that. That's great. And that leads me into the next question. So like, as you know, uh, and you just mentioned we're we're Opus One's going to premiere have the American premiere of Garden of Proserpine, which we're very very excited about. Um, <clears throat> so it was only recently rediscovered in quotation marks in the manuscripts and re and published then by uh, Stainer and Bell. Um, but I think specifically talking about of of Garden of Proserpine, why do you think it was he he undertook such a mo monumental effort to write? that kind of monumental work that uh, a work for chorus orchestra solo and and not have it published and not have it performed i mean was it a case that he wanted to just have something like that in his portfolio um he, we know that von williams was a composer that learned by doing so he uh was it that case was he was he teaching himself how to write some kind of of that work in that genre or did do you think there may have been um some prospects through maybe Stanford to get this performed at like a local music festival, like a, a music festival or something like that. Why do yeah, you that's, that's certainly possible. I think when it comes to putting works like this together, he, I think part of the issue is that 1899, which is when he completes this, is just a really busy year because he's got three large scale works that come that he completes during this time. There's his uh, Serenade for Small Orchestra. There's his uh, what's now popularly known as uh, a Cambridge Mass, which was his doctoral exercise for for uh, Cambridge that he had to go ahead and complete, and which he completed in a relatively short period of time. And then there's Garden Proserpine. None of these are, are pieces that you just kind of toss off in a weekend. I mean, these are large scale, difficult pieces that have a lot of complicated things going on in them. And they're, they're each about a good 20 to 25 minutes long. So when you're working in these kinds of, of veins, 
you know, it's, it is quite possible that with his eye on completing his doctoral work, with the prospect of the serenade getting performed at, uh, at Bournemouth, if I remember correctly, that maybe um, Proserpine had that same kind of prospect ahead of it. I think your, your suggestion that maybe he was hoping Stanford might pick it up is certainly possible. Stanford seemed to be kind of... Um, I don't want to say whimsical because I don't think Charles Stanford was ever whimsical a day in his entire life. But I, I think that he was unpredictable, that he might have an enthusiasm for something for a little while and then just sort of go off the boil uh, for whatever reason. But you're right in also noting that Vaughn Williams learned by doing. And so just figured, well, I found this text that I like. Let's go ahead and see what we can do with it. Because it's pretty clear that he mines it later on uh, for ideas that come back a little bit later. So I think it may have just sort of gotten lost in the shuffle with other opportunities that he had going on at about that same time. Right. Yeah, I, th I think that I, I would agree. I think that there may have been a prospect, but maybe it was just more about completing something of that scale and getting it under his belt. And it's kind of surprising because he talks to Holst about these kinds of things. And when you read his letters about this, and, and the letters are now uh, widely and freely available. There's a database of them that's uh, been transcribed, which is great for everybody who doesn't like to. I still have the uh, old, you know. Oh, yeah. There's you know, Cobb's old manuscript, of course, is a, or older manuscript is, of course, a great one. But now the whole complete set is out as well and it's, it's really handy for people who don't want to read uh, his cacography uh, as he called his his handwriting it looks like someone who was writing with their feet in the back of a pickup truck over a gravel road it's just appallingly bad um, but of course it's because he was of course a Victorian school child and almost certainly left-handed and probably forced to write with his right hand um, because conformity but having these letters available, now shows a real lightness in his approach to how he thinks about these things. I mean, he'll talk to Holst and say, oh yeah, I've just finished the trombone thing and I've got this other orchestral piece and the serenade's going back for another look and I'm nearly done with the mass. And he's got about three or four irons in the fire all at the same time and never seems to be hugely worried by them. He just will, will rotate from one to the next really easily. So um, I, I kind of like that because there's an aspect of his, of the, just the sheer scale of these things, these many large scale pieces that he's writing early on that seem quite difficult, but he doesn't seem to be terribly bothered by them. And it's really at odds with what we tend to emphasize from his early period, which is, you know, short works, songs, hymn tunes, other things along those lines. And then you've got these massive multi-movement orchestral works or this huge piano fantasia uh, that sounds like, you know, Rachmaninoff on a slightly uh, lighter day or these big choral orchestral works that are, are just tremendous pieces that then shrink down after the turn of the century once he realizes he, he can make money off of doing things in a smaller format, at least at first. But I think doing these big ones is, is it at least as much to prove to himself that he can do it. Um, and not so much with a sense of, will this be something that will be taken up? It's, I think it's trying to convince himself that he can do the thing. Um, and, and building his, his own confidence is a really important aspect of his own artistic growth at this time. Uh, and you just, you also mentioned um, with the handwriting, the Vic Victorian conformity, and that actually leads me to the next question. Um, so for someone who is sort of canonized as this patron saint of 20th century sacred English choral music. I mean, he was, he was 
I don't, I mean, he never really considered himself a Christian, you know, full-blown Christian. Oh, and absolutely I, not. No, and I no. think, you know, for his early life, he probably thought of himself, I mean, during his academic days, at least, as, as an atheist, you know, mm -hmm. in this, in this, um, you know, mid-19th century era, we have, you know, urbanization and these advances in technology and science um, and the breakdown, the fracturing of, of Christianity in, in England. Um, you know, his father was a, was a church, uh, he, he was a vicar, right? And his mother yeah. was, was related to Darwin. So, I mean, we have this, this, these polar opposites. Um, but my interest is in wh why would he choose something? Why would he choose this Swinburne text to write on? It's, it's, comp it comes from a, a collection that's, that's totally anti-Christian, anti you know, all of these big bombastic uh, of, of topics that are included in that, in that collection of poems and ballads. You know, what, what drew him to this Swinburne text, this anti-Christian Swinburne text i don't think it's necessarily the the anti-christian aspect of it i mean he's not like your more annoying atheists who will go ahead and deliberately try to pick fights and be you know irritable about it i mean he he comes to his conclusions i think because his family background is such that there's a sort of twofold aspect to it first um as you point out he is related to the darwins and he does have a fairly standard kind of you know middle class religious upbringing he goes to church in cold harbor growing up it's a sort of low anglican church which is fine um and he he understands the notion of why people do this and the importance of it as a cultural touchstone and so on but the whole family um both the von williamses and the darwins and the wedgwoods also on his mother's side they're a very interesting kind of um social representation that you don't often see in in late Victorian England that is to say they kind of exist on the borders and the boundaries of normal kinds of class statuses because they aren't of the gentry there's no aristocrats there's no landed gentry in his family they're definitely not working class either these are people who are intellectuals and professionals so they've made their money or they've made their occupations in the church but also in the law uh in sciences in um in artisan work so i mean the wedgwood family of course makes their money through business of making really high-end china and, and things along those lines um the darwins are artists you also find evangelists who are people who think very deeply and carefully at, at least in this point in time about the notion of what god is and how this works so you have all these people whose accomplishments comes from things they do and because they do that, they exist in this sort of weird nether region of, of social respectability. They can get away with things that people who maybe have similar kinds of social and financial status can't because they're bound in by certain class requirements. So he can get away with doing things that a lot of other people can't do. So he thinks about these kinds of things and he's encouraged to think about these kinds of things and make up his own mind as to whether or not it's appropriate to believe it and to and to find the joy in whatever conclusion he winds up coming to. For something like Swinburne's text, I think it's mainly because he's just a very literary kind of guy. He loves literature of all kinds. He's a voracious reader, if not necessarily a hugely discriminating one. I mean, he'll read pretty much anything that's put in front of him, but he reads it with an eye on what is engaging about this, what works well about this. And in the 18 
1990s, he's going through a big pre-Raphaelite phase. So he's he's fascinated with with Whitman. He's fascinated with the Rossettis and and figures like that. Tennyson is someone who's a big figure for him. So certainly Swinburne is you know right in the boiling hot center of that. So I think the kind of formal language that you get in there, the slightly mannered kind of quality to it, the there's a certain world weariness of the text. There's a certain, um, I don't want to say preciousness exactly, but there's a formality in the way that it's undertaken that I think very much appeals to his aesthetics at that time. And so resonates with him in a way that he feels he can draw something out of it that gives rise to these kinds of grand thoughts that he's trying to think at these particular point in times. Right. And it's all shrouded in this Hellenistic kind of metaphor that I think also allows him to get away with 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 saying some things like that that are anti-Christian like like this text. Uh, Absolutely. And and the end that fascination with Hellenism goes on for at least through the next decade because he's right. reading Gilbert Murray, you know, the uh, the Regis professor of, of history at Oxford, who is a, a, a leading expert on uh, Greek literature at the time and goes on to later set uh, texts from the Bacchae and so on. So he's he himself actually uh, read Greek extensively while he was at school. And so he probably would have been very familiar with these myths and stories and to see them reinterpreted in a more contemporary linguistic context, I think would have would have uh, set his imagination alight pretty quickly. Right. Great. That's fantastic. The, the the last thing I really wanted to pick your brain about was I know that you're not an official representative of the Vine Williams Charitable Trust, but I thought you might be able to speak about that organization, its mission, um, what it does and how it benefits Vine Williams legacy. I know Opus One has benefited now twice um, from the Vine Williams Trust, and I know we wouldn't be able to hold uh, present these these uh, events um, without their help. Um, which we are truly grateful for their for their help. Um, but but I'd I'd like you to speak about uh, the Von Williams Trust a little bit if you can. Absolutely. In fact, what, what we're talking about here are kind of two different groups. Um, when Von Williams was was getting on, he was a little bit over eighty, if I remember correctly. He had the idea that it was probably time to sort of formally codify a lot of his philanthropic efforts because he'd been making donations to a whole variety of different organizations over the course of his lifetime, um, sometimes very, very generous ones because he frankly had more money than he knew what to do with um, and really wasn't terribly concerned about using it as a, as a yardstick for keeping score of how successful you were. So he was happy to give it away. So he founded what became known as the RVW Trust. And this was an organization that has spun off millions and millions of pounds over the years towards supporting uh, fledgling composers, toward educational groups and organizations, and so on and so on, and, and has been a, a really, really powerful um, force for improving the quality of English musical culture since Vaughan Williams's death. The one stipulation, though, was that none of the monies could go toward research and work on his own music. He didn't want it to look like this was some kind of vanity project. So it was only much, much later on uh, that the Vaughan Williams Charitable Trust was created, which was designed to fill that rather conspicuous gap. So uh, the <laughs> VWCT has done some really 
fine work in encouraging Von Williams' research and performance. As you said, um, ob obviously, uh, you, you've benefited from it. I've benefited from it as, as a researcher. And the, the trustees uh, and the director, Hugh Cobb, who is himself, of course, uh, former head of music collections at the British Library, a long-standing Vaughan Williams enthusiast and scholar, the impetus behind the uh, Letters of Vaughan Williams project and, and a huge supporter of his music and scholarship within that. They have been absolutely instrumental in the efflorescence of performance and research and teaching and study and promotion of Vaughan Williams's music over about the last quarter century or so. And I can tell you, you know, absolutely for sure that if it weren't for them, the current landscape of, of work and performance of, of his music would be a very, very different, much poorer for it. So um, I, I am more than thrilled to go ahead and sing their praises. And if there's anybody who's listening who's interested in doing some work on uh, Vaughn Williams, check out the VWCT, uh, I believe it's vwct.org.uk. Uh, you can go ahead and find it easily online and get yourself set up with that. This has been wonderful. I really have enjoyed this conversation. Um, so I just want to say thank you to you, uh, Dr. Saylor, and to Von Williams Trust for making this uh, upcoming concert possible. We are all looking forward to it, and um, we hope uh, it's going to be a huge success. Well, the pleasure's been all mine. Thanks so much for asking. Thank you. information about Opus One, visit our website www.opus1chamberchoir.com. <laughs>